time traveling through history, one era at a time. I'm Kate Armstrong. The Queen of England frets in the Tower of London. She raises her hands and prays her husband will forgive her yet. Except she isn't queen. She's been stripped of that title. Just months ago, she was Henry's beloved wife, a member of a powerful and well-connected family. Now, Henry has forsaken her, and most of her family has been thrown in jail. Once hailed as a jewel of womanhood and virtue, she's been sentenced to die for leading an abominable, base, carnal, voluptuous, and vicious life, like a common harlot. How did she get here? How, before the age of 21, did she rise so high, only to fall so low? As Catherine Howard realizes a little bit too late, Tudor society is obsessed with, and terrified of, female sexuality. Tudor men live in fear of the dangers of unchecked, horny women running rampant, and their solution to this imaginary problem is to make sure that their hymens are carefully guarded and that their libidos are kept carefully contained. If you are a Tudor woman, having sex out of wedlock is dangerous on many levels. But if you are a Tudor queen, it can be straight-up deadly. You could lose your reputation, your crown, and your head. In this episode, Queen Catherine Howard is going to be our guide as we explore all things sex for Tudor ladies. We'll walk through the era's expectations and understanding of a woman's virtue, how a lady might keep from getting pregnant should she choose to risk it, and what happens if a woman gets pregnant out of wedlock. This one's going to be steamy and, let's be honest, possibly dire. And as always, we'll be joined on our time-traveling adventures by Tudor historian and expert Elizabeth Norton, whose excellent book, The Lives of Tudor Women, is a definite must-read. So, cover up that cleavage, grab some rue, and keep your legs tightly sealed. Let's go traveling. Before we go, though, be advised that this episode includes detailed discussion of amorous activity, as well as topics like sexual abuse, grooming, assault, and infanticide. You might want to preview this one before listening to it in the car with your littles. Now, a shout-out to some of my patrons. My newest pirate queens, Jamie, Melissa, Catherine, Mana, and Sarah Kay. My newest lady presidents, Renee, Megan, and Cassie. My boss ladies, Celia, Luna, Sarah S., Elizabeth M., Dawn, Nuria, Patricia, Grace, Rebecca, Tanya, Annabelle, Amy, Monique, Michelle, Natalie, Anne, and Stephanie. My adventuresses, Sano Nusuno, Iris, Kelly, Anna, Jessica, Sophie, and Julian, Carlos, Deborah, Jessica R., Terry, and Joe Marie. My warrior queens, Amanda, Ika, Alexis, June, Neve, and Sloan, and Kate. My imperial empresses, Katie, Bridget, Samara, and Faye and Whimsy Soapworks, and my lady pharaohs, Laura and the fabulous Courtney's. Patrons play such a huge role in keeping this show going. 
It's because of them that I was able to hire my amazing research and writing assistant, Carly, without whom this season just wouldn't be happening. For just a couple of bucks a month, patrons support an independent creator, and they get access to exclusive bonus episodes, contests, the Explores yearly calendar, interviews with guests like Elizabeth Norton, and more. To find out more, just go to my website. Catherine Howard is born a noblewoman from a respectable but somewhat impoverished family. She's still quite young when her mother dies, leaving her dad with ten children and an enormous amount of debt. Lucky for him, he has a friend in the Dowager Duchess of Norfolk, one of the highest-ranking women in England. She takes Catherine in when she's seven or eight, one of several female wards who receive housing and a courtly education from her. The Dowager Duchess is known for maintaining a strict and pious household, but it seems she isn't all that good at chaperoning or individual attention. Thus, Catherine and her friends are left to their own devices, navigating the treacherous minefield of how a young woman is meant to behave. The first thing we need to remember about our Tudor society is that it's built on the bricks of religious modesty and shame. So, if the first rule of Fight Club is, don't talk about Fight Club, then the first rule of being a good Tudor woman is, don't talk about sex. Nobody is actually saying the word sex in this era, mind you, unless they are referring to gender. Using the word sex to refer to the act of copulation won't catch on until the 1900s. Tudors have lots of euphemisms for it, the most common being some variation of lying together in bed. Basically, the 16th century equivalent of saying sleeping together. Most Tudor euphemisms talk about beds because, according to the church, the marital bed is the only acceptable place for such an act to happen. One married Tudor couple learned this the hard way when they're brought to court and charged with getting it on in their garden. For shame. With purity and modesty our most important pillars, talking about sex is a big no-no for us ladies. According to the church, a woman's body is meant to remain a mystery to everyone but God, and yet the church is kind of obsessed with talking about it. Tudors consider a single woman's body dangerous because of its potential to ruin her with an unwanted pregnancy, which, by extension, would ruin her entire family and even her community. Thus, it is a universally accepted truth that sex is off-limits for Tudor women unless they are married, or at least betrothed to be married, lest they unleash the dangers of their mysterious bodies upon an unsuspecting public. Fanatical Puritan Philip Stubbs was so passionate about this rule that he argued all sex outside of marriage should be punishable by death. Or, at the very least, the offenders should be shamed and seared with a hot iron. Uh, yes, hello? Is this Philip's pent-up sexual aggression calling? Having sex out of wedlock is guaranteed to earn you a bad reputation. And for Tudor women, reputation is the most valuable thing she'll ever own. Here's Elizabeth. Yeah, I mean, a woman's reputation was crucial. If you had a re reputation for being impure, you know, um, having had sex before marriage, then you... um. Gonna, you're going to really, really struggle with employment options. Unfortunately, it's mainly based on what others know about your amorous behavior, or rather, what they know about your lack of it. Because single Tudor women are expected to remain chaste until they marry, 
Most mothers don't even talk about horizontal tennis with their daughters, because being ignorant about sex is proof of purity. And purity is everything, both in appearance and practice. Heaven forbid what will happen if a girl actually has any kind of role in the hay with some local lad. One Tudor-era scholar warns that a violated woman's family will openly hate her and claims to know many fathers who have cut the throats of their daughters for having sex before marriage. I certainly hope not. But if you want to make a good marriage and stay in your family's good graces, it's best to keep those legs and your knowledge and maybe even your imagination firmly closed until you say, I do. start to understand this era's feelings about ladies in sexual congress, we need to talk about our concept of virginity. Now, we modern ladies know it's just a construct, not actually a physical state of being. But for the tutor, it's linked to a woman's moral chastity. Going to your marriage bed having known any other man but your husband is grounds for him to leave you in the dust. Virginity is so important in the 1500s because it's the easiest way of ensuring paternity. Virgin brides ensure that Tudor men can be confident that any future heirs are definitely theirs. There are medical texts to help grooms confirm the virginity of their potential bride, with one author suggesting that men should always inspect a woman's urine before walking down the aisle with her. Inspected for what exactly? Unclear. Other texts offer ways to help women restore their virginity so their future husband will be none the wiser. One advises her to Take nutmeg and grind it to a powder. Put it in that secret place, and virginity will be restored immediately. Just like magic. Our religion really stresses the importance of virginity for Tudor women. The Virgin Mary is often held up as a role model for us to emulate, setting the bar at somehow being both a virgin and a mother, despite the fact that becoming a mom, spoiler alert, requires some time between the sheets or in the hay. Tudor expectations about female sexuality are chock-full of contradictions. Wives are expected to be chaste, but they are also expected to sleep with their husbands. They're supposed to dress well enough to delight their hubbies, but not so well as to look as though they're trying to receive attention from other men. One Tudor man even argues that women shouldn't care about their appearance at all because that's a mark of ambition. And you know ambition led Eve to sin. Sin brought her to shame, shame to her shroud. How is it then that these rags of sin, these robes of shame, should make you idolize yourselves? A woman's behavior and her sexuality are so intricately linked in the Tudor period that men seem to think that by simply observing a woman's behavior, they will be able to tell whether or not she's a virgin. They believe that chaste women are modest, obedient, and passive. And thus, if you are a Tudor woman, the slightest behavioral misstep can give you a reputation as morally loose. When Jane Robinson's neighbors reported her for loudly singing a dirty song, for example, the local court sentenced her to a correctional house, not for disturbing the peace, but for being like a common harlot. Yikes. We Tudor ladies have to be especially careful about how we behave in public, whether it's at court or at the town market. It's important to remember that, as Tudor-era scholar Juan Luis Vives puts it, her good name seems to hang by a cobweb. 
Your neighbors are always watching, and virtue damaged can't necessarily be repaired. If some slur has attached to a girl's reputation from men's opinion of her, Veeves writes, it usually remains forever and is not erased except by clear proofs of her chastity and wisdom. Which means you have to appear virtuous at all times, which generally means no overt flirting, no sustained direct eye contact, and no talking back to the men around you. If that sounds hard, well, you can always stay at home. After all, could virgins never stray far from home on their own? The only women who do that are prostitutes. So, if you're seen out in public by yourself, obviously you must be a soiled dove. And if you are ambitious or outspoken, you are clearly a sexually depraved she-devil, because bold behavior in a woman could not possibly be explained by anything else. Queen Anne Boleyn's only crime was being too outspoken, and, you know, not loving when her husband slept with other women. But she was executed for adultery, because in Tudor England, it is easiest to condemn a woman's behavior when it is sexual in nature. In sum, for us Tudor ladies, flirtation has to be wielded carefully and wisely, which, frankly, is a pretty big ask. Luckily, Tudor men are all too happy to tell women how to navigate this confusing minefield of their own impossible expectations. There are plenty of practical guides for female conduct, which are essentially advice books aimed at trying to regulate the behavior of women. But if you're looking for the definitive women's manual of the century, look no further than Instruction of a Christian Woman, written for Princess Mary by Juan Luis Vives. Unsurprisingly, Vives lists chastity as the most important feminine virtue, which he claims protects women and their reputations. Although he quickly clarifies that chastity doesn't actually protect a woman and advises them against ever leaving the house. Great, thanks. For all those women who absolutely must go out, Vives suggests preparing as if for a fight. There will always be some man trying to meddle with you and your virtue. Catherine's about to learn that all too well. might not be leaving the dowager's house much, but trouble seems to find its way to her. It seems that men are often coming and going from her estates, and that the dowager isn't very good at doing employee background checks. Thus, Catherine has the misfortune of meeting a certified creep, Henry Mannix, who is hired to be her music tutor. He is around 21 years old, and Catherine is 12 or 13. This, it seems, isn't an issue for Mannix. Upon meeting the already very lovely Catherine, he decides it would definitely be appropriate to hit on his student, who is a literal child. Catherine may still be a tween, but she is well aware of how inappropriate Mannix's behavior is. She refuses him over and over as he continually badgers her to allow him to handle and touch the secret parts of my body. To which she replies, I will never be naught with you, and able to marry me, you be not. You tell him, Catherine. She and Mannix both know he isn't in a position to make an honest woman out of her. Given his less-than-noble status, her family will never agree to a marriage between them. Catherine's roommate, Mary Hall, even chastises him about it, saying that his love for Catherine will be his undoing. He replies that he's just trying to get into her kirtle, thanks, so no need to worry about it. 
Someone please strangle this man with a strong pair of hose. Catherine knows what a young woman risks when she meddles with a man who she isn't married to. Sadly, Mannix, the human equivalent of a sweaty codpiece, refuses to take no for an answer. He's decided he's fallen in love with Catherine, and delusionally believes that she's simply playing hard to get. He continues to harass her until she finally agrees to let him touch her, but only so he'll stop pestering her. I am content, she supposedly said, so as you will desire no more. Um, where is the dowager in all this? Clearly not watching her ward very closely. And it seems Catherine doesn't tell her step-grandmother or her governess about Mannix's abusive behavior. Perhaps because she knows that she'll be judged as the guilty party. She is a woman, after all. And that it will just be her word against his. She also knows that if people were to find out, it could seriously damage her reputation as a chaste woman and ruin her ability to make a good marriage. Nevertheless, Mannix isn't that sneaky. The Dowager Duchess does find out, and she reacts exactly how Catherine expects. She beats Catherine, forbids her from seeing Mannix anymore, and even moves her to another estate so they can't see each other. Unfortunately, this guy actually follows her, finds employment at a neighboring estate, and continues to try to see Catherine, often using friends to try and deliver messages. Stalker much? Clearly, Tudor men like Mannix are not the least bit concerned about preserving their own virginity. The double standard is alive and well in the 16th century, so while women are told their throats might get cut if they have sex before marriage, men are told no such thing. If a good Tudor woman is modest, pure, and submissive, a good Tudor man is hardworking, honorable, responsible, and good with the ladies whereas women wouldn't dare to have sexual conquests, let alone speak about them. Tudor men are definitely bragging about the notches on their bedposts. Men want a reputation for virility and sexual prowess, which is why Robert Harding testifies in court that he slept with the whore, Catherine Worsley, just so Catherine wouldn't spread the rumor that he was impotent, which might have ruined his chances with the wealthy widow he was courting. Note that nobody called Robert a whore or a gold digger. Oh, wait, I just did. <music> Tudor men aren't encouraged to go around sleeping with whoever, whenever. Not by the church, anyway, as we learned in our episode on Tudor marriage. Tudor men do care about maintaining their honor and good name, but having sex before marriage doesn't automatically give them bad reputations in the same way it does for a lady. It takes a great deal of very excessive and public bad behavior for men to fall from moral grace. Poor life choices such as gambling, having debts, or failing to responsibly manage their households are considered much more serious faux pas for men than sleeping around. Even marital infidelity isn't really condemned if it's conducted discreetly. It's so common for noblemen to have mistresses that many wives basically expect it, viewing adultery as a natural and undeniable necessity amongst men. In fact, it's actually encouraged for some if their wives are pregnant. Tudors believe that sex during pregnancy is harmful to the baby, and practicing abstinence within a marriage is bad for a man's health. This basically means a man has to find somewhere else to get his healthful jollies, a loophole King Henry has used joyfully and often. That being said, reckless sexual behavior will definitely get a Tudor man in trouble. 
For example, one surefire way to bring shame upon your household is by committing adultery with your servant. Good household governance means ensuring the proper conduct. So, if a servant becomes pregnant, it's partly the master's fault for failing to uphold discipline. Unfortunately, it seems that many masters aren't super disciplined. Men are frequently brought to court on charges of this very crime. When one of them was presented to the court on a charge of adultery, his citation was positively ringing with indignation. Master Lewis Carolyn, in greatest contempt of Christianity, impregnated his servant, Margaret. He sent her to the country to wait there until she gave birth. Afterwards, she returned to his house. He impregnated her a second time and again sent her outside the city, and she is pregnant now. He cares neither for God nor for the Lord King whom he serves, nor for the law nor for the ministers of the law. He has a young wife who is certain of these things, as are all his neighbors. Nowhere in the speech do we get any justice for the servant who is left in a pretty precarious situation. Girls are frequently warned to watch out for the flattery of the men they work for. But often they are living under the same roof as their seducers, away from home and family for the first time, with no one but their master to protect them. A power imbalance, to say the least. To make matters worse, sometimes servants are expected to sleep in the same beds as their employers. A maid named Joan Rayner takes her master's family to court when she becomes pregnant out of wedlock, and they try to end her working contract early. It turns out that, whenever the parson argued with his wife and needed another bed to sleep in, he'd send his stepson to sleep in Joan's room, though it turns out they weren't doing a whole lot of sleeping. At least servants do have some legal recourse in these situations. Masters are often financially liable for their servants' illegitimate children, if the relationship can be proved. But what happens if it can't be proved? What happens if a young woman's reputation is ruined and she loses her job? Nothing good. It's one thing if a tutor woman enters into such a relationship willingly. But what about when she isn't interested in a man's advances, but is made prey to them anyway? Here's Elizabeth. Rape is also socially very different, difficult for women because, of course, you know, rape is physically a nightmare, but also women will be tarred by it, if you like. So even if you are raped, you will be treated as though you have had premarital sex or, you know, or committed adultery. Um, this is why women often marry their rapists in the period, because if you marry your rapist, that takes away the stain of your unchastity. And of course, you know, this is, I mean, absolutely ridiculous and awful, but this, you know, contemporary belief is that if you have had sex, then you are unpure unless it's with your husband. And that does include rape. The legal records show a very low strike rate when it comes to convicting rapists. In November of 1563, a 12-year-old girl named Agnes is assaulted in some fields in Ashford in Kent. In court, she says that he ravished her before she could break away and shout for help. And yet the man, a local laborer, isn't convicted. After all, it's just her word against his. And as our friend Veeves argues in cases of rape, the fault lies entirely with the woman, because her chastity is supposed to protect her from harm. So if she is raped, she obviously wasn't chased to begin with. That's some airtight logic right there. It's even harder to prove when it comes to accusations made by servant girls. 
One Joan Lee accuses her master of raping her, and yet he's found innocent. Another Joan accuses a local yeoman of raping her in her master's house, and he's let off. The list of such cases goes on and on. Sexual violence is an ever-present worry for Tudor women, and they know that taking it to court is unlikely to win them any justice. Even reporting such things, especially when it's about your employer, is going to ruin your reputation and maybe make you unemployable. If a woman's virtuous reputation is her most important asset, she'll do almost anything to keep it. So, most Tudor women probably keep their traumas to themselves. But let's get back to Catherine, who is engaging in what seems like some problematic but probably consensual sexy time. She has finally ditched the creepy manics and snagged herself a new man. As it turns out, the Dowager Duchess's plan to move Catherine to a different estate to protect her virginity backfires spectacularly. At the Lambeth estate, young noblemen living nearby often sneak into the girls' dormitories at night to cavort with the Duchess's young charges. What kind of school is this woman running? One man who's a frequent participant in these panty raids is Francis Durham, who is a favorite of the Duchess. He previously slept with Catherine's roommate, but he soon falls in love with the charming Catherine, and the couple have a full-on romance. Catherine will later testify that, Commonly he called me his wife, and many times I called him husband. And it does seem like Durham considers Catherine his wife. When he leaves for an extended trip, he asks her to look after the bulk of his savings, telling her to consider it her own should he fail to return. So, is this marriage real or just an air quotes situation? As we learned in our episode on Tudor marriage, verbally stating an intent to marry and then consummating the relationship is technically all that's needed for a Tudor couple to be considered hitched. And even though they did not get permission to wed, Catherine and Francis's relationship is an open secret within the household. The Dowager Duchess tries her best to prevent them from seeing each other by continually beating them both whenever she sees them embracing, but eventually she seems resigned. Whenever somebody asks her where Durham is, she replies, I warrant you, if ye seek him in Catherine Howard's chamber, ye shall find him there. Catherine's youthful affairs and the Dowager Duchess's inability to protect her virtue play right into Tudor society's belief that only men are capable of running a household and achieving the domestic order needed to contain female sexuality. A household that lacks a male authority figure leads to an atmosphere of rampant eroticism. Men are necessary to control women's sexual urges. I mean, in this case, it seems like men's urges are most certainly the problem, but sure. Let's go with that. So, how often are young Tudor women engaging in premarital sex? It's hard to say. Most girls simply listen to their mothers and remain chaste until marriage. To do otherwise is to risk too much to make it worth it. But if, say, our time-traveling boyfriend, Tom Hiddleston, were to sidle up to me in a tight pair of hose and doublet and ask if I'd like to take a tour of his library, I mean, what's a girl supposed to do? For those who do choose to get up to some risky business, how are they keeping from getting pregnant? It seems that Catherine knows a great deal about the subject, and once even bragged that A woman might meddle with a man, and yet conceive no child, unless she would for herself. 
The church condemns contraception as morally wrong and claims that birth control isn't necessary because sex within a marriage is only supposed to be for procreation. It's not for pleasure, you heathen. And thus, trying to keep from getting pregnant is considered rather a grievous sin. As one priest wrote, Those who buy potion, drink, or whatever other method prevent conception and generation out of a fear of having too many children sin mortally. Contraception and abortion are both illegal and have been for centuries, but that doesn't stop people from doing what they want to do. Abstinence is the most surefire way, of course, to keep from bearing fruit, but this can be difficult. Just ask medieval Pope John XI, who devoted a whole chapter of his medical manual to how to ward off great desire and fleshly lust. Tudors are most certainly practicing family planning, both married and not. Population levels and birth records show that people are limiting the size of their families, spacing out their births, and trying to avoid giving birth during winter. You try popping a small human out of your body when it's cold enough to frost over your chamber pot, okay? And while the easiest and most commonly used forms of contraception are simply abstention and coitus interruptus, there are other methods in play. For example, men cover their disco sticks in all sorts of things. Rosin of cedar, rock salt, tar, hemlock, deadly nightshade, or sesame oil. Okay. Rudimentary condoms also exist. In 1980, some lambskin condoms will be found in Dudley Castle, proving that such methods are indeed in use not long after Catherine's time. But they're rare and expensive, and not very accessible. They are also meant to be washed and reused. So, gross. They're certainly not something a woman can count on. Instead, she'll turn to herbal remedies, the kinds of things that have been used for centuries. To kill sperm or induce miscarriages, Tudor women ingest herbs and oils such as mint, rue, or honeysuckle. And they sometimes invert vinegar-soaked wool or beeswax into their lady palaces. These are techniques that go all the way back to the ancient Greek and Roman times. So what happens if your oil of rue doesn't do its job? Some Tudor women turn to abortion, which is highly illegal, but fairly common. When one Joan Barnett sleeps with Thomas Frenchman and she asks him what to do if she becomes pregnant, he says he expects her to take something to do away with it. Cool. Thanks, Thomas. Lucky for Joan, information about this taboo topic isn't that hard to find if you know where to look such as books like The Ladies' Dispensatory or The Accomplished Ladies' Delight, or by asking your female friends or the local midwife. As we found out in our episode on pregnancy in Tudor times, such measures taken early enough aren't even considered abortion. Until a woman feels the quickening, which is pretty far along, it's fair game. While most women end up ingesting various herbs, some of which might do her some serious mischief. Others resort to more violent methods. When Elizabeth Williams became pregnant by a man who proposed and then abandoned her, she was reported to the church, who recorded that she was with child by him and, as she confessed, fell over a stile and so spoiled it. Single women are not the only ones trying to cause abortions in the Tudor period. Married men sometimes take matters into their own hands as well, by striking their pregnant wives in their bellies, and, on rare occasions, the men inadvertently end up killing the mother. 
When Joan Miles and her unborn baby died after her husband's brother desperately shook her and kneed her in the stomach, we can hope that this is a rare instance. Certainly less rare is the terror of what will happen to a woman who has a baby out of wedlock. Being an unwed, single-tutor mother is, for most, a ticket to a life of poverty, social exile, and shame. Tudor society goes out of its way to make life for unwed mothers as difficult as possible. We Tudors don't like a woman alone, out from under the tempering control of a husband. And one who's had a baby? Horrors. Becoming a live-in servant is often the best employment option for unwed mothers because it at least places them under the control of a male master. But they often lose their jobs for committing such a sin, which also means losing the roof over their heads. Finding housing is almost impossible, and people are actively punished for providing it to them. Even a girl's parents can be punished for taking in their ruined daughter and her quote-unquote bastard baby. Finding a new job is just as difficult because nobody wants to hire a morally suspect woman, and childcare options are virtually non-existent. Unwed mothers are also forbidden from earning a living by their own skill. They aren't allowed to work as maids or day laborers, and many women are brought to court and jailed for even trying to do so. They can peddle goods, but this often puts them in a physically vulnerable situation. And women who walk the streets selling anything are often suspected of and jailed for prostitution. Sometimes, that trade is the only way a single mother can make ends meet. And while some work alone, others find lodging in brothels. These are illegal in most towns, and the punishments for so-called women of evil life are pretty daunting. Such a path will stain a woman's good name and reputation for life. Unfortunately, the church isn't very empathetic towards unmarried mothers, and they often deny them poor relief on the grounds that they are undeserving of aid because they're technically able-bodied. Although some clergy members clearly relish the idea of women being forced to live with the consequences of their own sexual depravity. In cases where a pre-contract may have existed with the baby daddy, the church does try to make men honor their responsibilities. And some clergy members even help unwed mothers secure child support. Bishops and governors have a vested interest in helping pregnant women identify wayward fathers because otherwise the church and the city are responsible for financially supporting them. Thus, court officials spend a great deal of time hunting down dads and forcing them to pay. Of course, they go about it in the most shaming way possible for the lady. The bishop often demands the pregnant woman give the father's name in front of their whole congregation. If she refuses, her midwife is duty-bound to ask her about it during labor, because that's a dangerous time for a woman, and it's thought that she's less likely to damn her soul with a lie. A childbed interrogation. What a relaxing birthing experience that must be. When such cases go to court, pregnant women are encouraged to name the father and tell their story in order to facilitate the process. And while this can't have been comfortable, at least this is one place where women's testimony is always believed. It's up to the man to prove his innocence. This means that servants who have been treated poorly by their masters have at least some recourse to make them pay. Take Alice Bruster, who went to court and declared that her said master got her with child, and she said that he promised her marriage and abused her half a dozen times in the shop and other places. Her master denied this, but Alice came prepared with three witnesses, all of whom had heard the man try to buy Alice's silence. He finally admitted his wrongdoing and promised 
to keep her the time she lay in childbed and further to give her twenty pounds, or else marry her. Given the grim realities of single motherhood in the Tudor period, an unwed pregnant woman's best option is to find a husband as quickly as possible. This is difficult, but not impossible. Between 1561 and 1640, an estimated 14 to 28 percent of women married within 10 years of giving birth to a child out of wedlock. That being said, Tudor men are well aware that a single pregnant woman is fairly desperate, and they are terrified of being entrapped by them. They are so horrified by the prospect of being deceived about a woman's purity and fathering another man's child that one book entitled A Caveat or Warning for All Sorts of Men warns, The fairest apple to the eye may have a rotten core, and young men take heed, trust not a whore. With such dire consequences afoot, we can imagine how many women find themselves in a place of helplessness, isolation, and desperation which leads to panic and, sometimes, infanticide. In Tudor England, this happens a lot more than you might think. Here's Elizabeth. It's often the case that the mother is a, an unmarried servant girl um, who, you know, gives birth alone, often in the employer's house or in the woods outside, and then kills the baby. And the reason for that is if they were discovered to have given birth to an illegitimate child, they would have been completely ruined. You know, they're unemployable. Um, they're looking at being beggars. No one's going to marry them. Um, you know, they'll be out on the streets um, because women are expected not to have sex before marriage. While some contemporary Tudor writers express compassion for the women who commit it, most condemn them as monsters, cannibals, or witches. One contemporary wrote, How many virgins, how many widows also ensnared and entangled with these arts and devilish practice have committed cruel and more than brutish murders of their tender babes and infants. When you look at the account of infanticide, so where they, they murdered their babies, the, the ways the babies die are often very, very grisly. Um, but actually, when you look at the methods that they've used, they're clearly girls in a panic, you know, and they're, they're, they're nonviolent ways of killing. They'll often bury the baby alive or, you know, they'll bury them in sawdust or they smother them with their clothing. But they're not, you know, they're not sort of these. Are, I, I think what I mean, they're kind of the way that you could imagine that someone in a panic would try and dispose of a baby rather than someone who, you know, is trying act to kill them and of course it will kill them and in, and in horrible ways being buried alive but it's more of someone trying to get rid of this, this baby trying to throw it away you know stop it kind of existing I think than actually you know actually you know doing violent to the child so I think although it's a horrible thing to do I think in many ways we can see into their psyche it's almost always the mother who kills the baby and you know actually they probably won't be able to support this child in any event, and they won't be able to support themselves either. Tudor England, as in so many times and places, is an unforgiving world for women who don't follow the rules. Let's veer off this dark path for a minute and get back to Catherine. 
her relationship with Francis keeps on going, hot and pretty heavy, until a jealous ex, Henry Mannix, sends an anonymous whiny letter to the Duchess, essentially tattling on the full extent of their relationship. Durham is sent to Ireland, although he returns when Catherine becomes queen, and he manages to work his way into a position as Catherine's private secretary and gentleman usher of the Queen's Chamber. So why don't you suck on that, Mannix? When she's around 16 years old, Catherine Howard is excited to find herself invited to court to become one of the Queen's ladies-in-waiting. Henry's court is a hotbed of wealth, privilege, and flirtation, a place where young girls can find prospective husbands and engage in games of courtly love. What exactly is courtly love, you wonder? Here's Elizabeth. Yeah, so courtly love is, it comes from the medieval period, um, very, very fashionable. And it's this idea about a young sort of lower status male, but, you know, still gentleman or knight, um, who is is in love with, you know, a queen or a princess or a higher status woman. If chivalry is a code of conduct men try to go by, at least in public, courtly love is a sort of game. For women, it's about flirting prettily and even encouraging men's devotions, but never actually taking it any farther. And it's very much about unattainability. You know, they're never, this love is never going to be consummated. They are loving a goddess, an idol, and, you know, they'll sort of, they'll write poetry and they'll um, speak words of love to the woman. They'll dance with them, you know, but it's all, it's all very much a game in that, you know, it's not expected that they will, you know, eventually sleep together. But you have to know the rules and transgressing them can be dangerous. Take Anne Vavasour, one of Queen Elizabeth I's maids, who takes her flirtation a little too far with the married Earl of Oxford. She gives birth to his baby at Whitehall at just 16 years old, and she and the Earl are thrown into the Tower of London. But it isn't just that you should keep your skirt firmly fastened in order to protect your reputation. Even flirting a little too hard can get you in some serious trouble. After all, Anne Boleyn made some two-pointed flirtatious comments to a male courtier on one of her stress days, and it's part of what led to her untimely demise. Luckily, pretty Catherine is danced into a court where girls like her are considered a breath of sensual fresh air. Henry is not getting along with Anne of Cleves, his fourth wife, particularly in the marriage bed, and it's calling his manliness into question. So it's no surprise that Catherine, who has developed a reputation as a hazel-eyed, all-burn-haired beauty with a notable appearance of honor, cleanliness, and maidenly behavior, immediately catches Henry's attention, despite their 30-year age gap. Her youth and vivacity put a real pep in Henry's step. With the help of a conservative faction hell-bent on returning to old Catholic orthodoxy, Catherine becomes the next Queen of England after less than a year at court. After a whirlwind courtship, she and Henry are married on July 28, 1540, just 19 days after his marriage to Anne is annulled. Henry's nothing if not efficient. For a full 10 days, they keep the whole thing more or less a secret, as Henry wants alone time with his pretty, sweet new bride. Now that Catherine is officially married, she is also officially allowed to have sex, and maybe even enjoy it. The church encourages sex, at least for the purposes of reproduction, and for keeping the rampant sexual needs of women under control. Tudors believe that women's bodies run hot, which means they are more susceptible to the devil, and also that they're constantly craving sex. 
If women don't have regular intercourse with their husbands, they can get sick. So frequent horizontal tennis time within marriage is advised to keep them healthy. Of course, some clergy members warn that too much sex with your spouse is sinful and akin to prostitution. And all clergy members preach against the other, sin of uncleanliness, masturbation. Of course, regular sex is hard to achieve on the church's strict and obsessive schedule. They actually have rules about when, where, and how you can have sex. Spouses are forbidden from getting busy during Lent, Advent, feast days, fast days, Easter week, Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Women's schedules are even more restricted. Sex is forbidden if they are menstruating, pregnant, breastfeeding, or within 40 days of having given birth, which gives them a pretty limited window with which to quench their supposedly insatiable appetites. We can assume that most people ignore such rules and set their own amorous schedules. The church bans all sexual positions except for missionary and claims that it's the best way to conceive a male child. Any other sexual position can lead to a deformed child, they reckon. If you like it on top, this isn't the era for you. How seriously are Tudor women taking these guidelines? Based on birth records alone, and the fact that it was quite common for betrothed women to get pregnant well before their weddings, it is obvious that most Tudors ignore their friendly neighborhood bishop. At least when it comes to this. The one church rule I can definitely get behind is the doctrine that both men and women have to have an orgasm to produce a child, as that ensures they both release the necessary seed in their bodies. So, at least we can assume our man is trying. Bishops aren't the only ones who want to control sex. Tudor doctors also get in on the action. They agree with the church that abstinence is unhealthy, and they advise married couples to have regular intercourse to avoid the buildup of seminal humor within the body. Most doctors also believe that sex isn't safe for young people. So even though girls can technically be married off as early as 12, they are often advised to wait until 14, 15, or 16 to consummate their marriage. One young couple who didn't wait, but clearly should have, was Catherine of Aragon's older brother Juan and his bride, Marguerite of Austria. Juan was just 15 when he got married, and because the newlyweds appeared to be so in love, their parents allowed the two teenagers to live together. Unfortunately, they couldn't keep their hands off of each other, and Juan died within a year. His cause of death? Overexertion in the marital bed. I mean, there are probably worse ways to go. Like Juan, Henry Tudor is very much enjoying his conjugal time with his new wife. He no longer seems to be having any problems in the bedroom, like he did with Anne. As one courtier observed, The king is so amorous of her that he cannot treat her well enough and caress her more than he did the others. And despite their age gap and Henry's increasingly distressing health problems, Catherine seems happy enough with her new lot in life. She is gorgeous, young, sweet, and stylish, and Henry dotes on her, showering her with lavish gifts of clothing and jewelry. His friends have never seen him quite this obsessed before, and that's saying something. On August 8th, when Catherine is publicly introduced to the court for the first time, his envoys are told that Henry was drawn to her by a notable appearance of honor, cleanliness, and maidenly behavior and that his highness was finally contented to honor that lady with his marriage, thinking in his old days, after sundry troubles of mind which had happened to him by marriage, to have obtained such a perfect jewel of womanhood and very perfect love towards him, 
as should have been not only to his quietness, but also to have brought forth the desired fruits of marriage. Catherine relishes her new status and proves a clever consort, even though nothing about her life has prepared her for this kind of pomp and circumstance. She does struggle with her new role as stepmother. Henry's eldest daughter, Princess Mary, is just two years older than Catherine. Awkward. But she forms a good relationship with Princess Elizabeth and graciously hosts Henry's ex-wife Anne when she visits court. Catherine also excels as a wife, combining the submissiveness of Jane Seymour with the seductive style of Anne Boleyn, adopting the motto, No other wish but his. Catherine is everything that's been denied Henry thus far, he feels, and he has no doubt she'll give him many male heirs. He has one already, but a few spares wouldn't hurt anything. He never stops to wonder how his rose without a thorn became so skilled in the bedroom. I mean, she must just have a knack for it. But her honor and maidenly behavior are about to be called into scandalous question. In November 1541, a man named John Lassells comes sidling up to Thomas Cranmer. He has information, he says, about the queen that would make any virtuous man blush. His sister, Mary Hall, told him of Catherine's sexual exploits with Francis Derham. Cranmer's interested, but wary. John is a rabid anti-Catholic who hates the conservative Howard faction, so he's got a vested interest in seeing the Queen ruined. Cranmer, a Protestant himself, wouldn't be mad about seeing her deposed, but knows he has to get all of his factual ducks in a row. He interviews Mary, who tells him about all the times Derham snuck into Catherine's dormitory, and she has no doubt about what they were getting up to. As one of Catherine's former roommates, she should know. Cranmer decides to write a letter to Henry, accusing Catherine of living most corruptly and sensually. Henry dismisses the claims, he doesn't want to believe them, and orders an investigation into who is slandering his beloved wife. Mary and John are both interrogated, and then both Henry Mannix and Frances Derham are arrested. And from there, everything goes right to hell. Henry puts Catherine on house arrest while the council interrogates her former lovers. His initial idea is to keep her safe and tucked away until she's proven innocent, as he knows she will be. But no one will tell Catherine what she's being detained for. Clearly suffering from a guilty conscience, a fearful Catherine stops eating and sleeping. She knows she has a treacherous time ahead. Back up, how did this all actually start? With Henry Mannix, of course. Mannix, ever the slimy eel, decided it would be a great idea to brag openly about having felt up the Queen of England. After already having torpedoed Catherine's relationship with Derham, seriously, dude, get a hobby. He's the one who initially boasted to Mary Hall, I know her well enough, for I have had her by the and I know it among a hundred. This original brag is what kicked off the whole investigation, which leads to his subsequent arrest and interrogation. Didn't see that one coming, did you, mate? While being tortured, Mannix admits that he had commonly used to feel the secrets and other parts of the Queen's body, but says that he never knew her carnally. He also takes the opportunity to, once again, throw Francis Derham under the bus, pointing out that he was the one who deflowered Catherine. Her betrayal confirmed, Henry breaks down weeping in front of his council. When Catherine hears, she breaks free of her guards and tries to run to Henry's chambers to explain herself. She is taken back to her rooms, screaming. 
Heartbroken, Henry leaves the palace. He will never see his wife again. One diplomat writes that Henry had taken such grief at being deceived that of late it was thought he had gone mad. Meanwhile, Archbishop Thomas Cranmer is dispatched to interview Catherine regarding Mannix's testimony. Catherine breaks into fits of panicked, desperate weeping, eventually admitting that At the flattering and fair persuasions of Mannix, being but a young girl, I suffered him at sundry times to handle and touch the secret parts of my body which neither became me with honesty to permit, nor him to require. An honest and rather thought-provoking answer, but you know Cranmer, and England, doesn't care that Mannix bullied her. When asked if she had a sexual relationship with Francis Durham, Catherine admits that they slept together and called each other husband and wife. But she refuses to admit there was a pre-contract between them, and actually implies that Durham forced himself upon her. She's scared, and probably scarred, and maybe guilt-ridden. What else can she do? Ah, Catherine. With the benefit of hindsight, we know her life might have been spared if she confessed to the pre-contract. It would have allowed Henry to simply annul their marriage. But Catherine's pride, fear, and perhaps her desperation to hold on to her title prevent her from seeing it. Her testimony leads to Durham admitting, under torture, that he had known her carnally many times, both in his doublet and hose between the sheets and in naked bed. His confession is corroborated by the damning testimony of three of Catherine's old roommates, who often heard the couple having sex while they were trying to sleep. Durham also lets slip another bombshell. Catherine is now in love with a courtier named Thomas Culpepper, and soon Thomas is hauled in for questioning. Catherine is promptly taken by armed guard to Scion House and placed under house arrest. And several days later, she is stripped of her title as queen. Henry may have been willing to forgive Catherine for her scandalous past, maybe, but an affair during their marriage proves too much humiliation. Thomas Culpepper is one of the king's closest friends, his gentleman of the privy chamber. This unmanning betrayal is noted by one contemporary, who remarked, Culpepper, who had been from childhood brought in the king's chamber, unordinarily shared his bed, and apparently wished to share the queen's too. Savage. Thomas, a distant cousin of Catherine's, is charming, attractive, and popular. But before you start to feel sorry for this character, you should know that he's the proverbial bad boy of the Tudor court. It's a well-known fact that he raped a woman in the woods and then murdered the man who tried to report him for it. He was pardoned for both crimes by Henry. Despite his dark past, Catherine couldn't help but fall for Thomas. Her love letters to him are used as evidence in the investigation. One reads, Master Culpepper, I never long so much for a thing as I do to see you and to speak with you. Thus I take my leave of you, trusting to see you shortly again. And I would you were with me now that you might see what pain I take in writing to you. Yours as long as life endures, Catherine. Under torture in the Tower of London, Thomas Culpepper admits that he held secret illicit meetings with the Queen, and that he was planning to have sex with her, although they hadn't actually done the deed. He testifies that she incited him to have intercourse with her, and insinuated that she loved him better than the King and all others. So essentially, he blames Catherine for being too forward, because of course he does. His testimony is confirmed by the accounts of several servants who report that the Queen often left her chamber at night to go to Lady Rochford's room and meet up with Thomas in secret. It is soon discovered that Lady Rochford, one of Catherine's ladies-in-waiting, helped orchestrate the whole affair. 
Thomas Cranmer goes to exact yet another confession from poor Catherine, who admits to meeting Thomas in secret, although she denies having a sexual relationship with him. She then writes several letters of confession to the king, one of which reads, I, your grace's most sorrowful subject and most vile wretch in the world, not worthy to make any recommendations unto your most excellent majesty, do only make my most humble submission and confession of my faults. Now I refer the judgment of all mine offences, with my life and death, wholly unto your most benign and merciful grace, to be considered by no justice of your majesty's laws, but only by your infinite goodness, pity, compassion, mercy, without which I acknowledge myself worthy of most extreme punishment. Tudor men find the idea of being cuckolded incredibly humiliating. If your wife cheats on you, it means you haven't been able to control her, which makes you a failure as a husband and a man. A wife cheating on her husband is considered so perverted that it's nothing short of treason. It completely destroys the patriarchal system of household governance that Tudor society is built on. It's seen as the rebellion of a subject, the wife, against her king, the husband, which means it upsets the natural order. There's a large criminal umbrella having to do with sex outside of marriage, and Tudor men and women are brought to court for everything from adultery to public fornication. Concerned with eradicating poverty, officials and governors criminalized prostitution, begging, and bastard-bearing, all of which seem to stem from unrestricted female sexuality and thus disproportionately affect women. Punishments are doled out by both church and civil courts, and although the punishments themselves vary, they are all designed to publicly humiliate the offender and damage their reputation. Some common sentences include excommunication from the church, being sent to the pillory, being stripped and flogged, and public whippings. It isn't that uncommon to see a woman being marched through the streets. Your punishment could be even worse if you're a member of the court, especially if your sexual misadventures become public. Remember Queen Elizabeth's maid, who will be thrown with her married lover into the Tower of London? Unsurprisingly, Tudor women are often given harsher sentences than men, in large part because the male-dominated Tudor courts go easier on male offenders. Sometimes, juries of matrons are called in as expert witnesses to perform physical exams and investigate claims of rape, infanticide, or pregnancy. But many men are still able to avoid prison time for things like sexual violence by simply arbitrating compensation. As always, when it comes to the consequences of copulation and sexual conduct, Tudor women are the ones who truly pay. On December 10, 1541, Thomas Culpepper and Francis Derham are sentenced to a traitor's death. Their heads are set upon the London Bridge as a gruesome reminder of Catherine's mistakes and Henry's power. What happened to Mannix? That idiot was somehow released. And I'm not sure what became of him. Hopefully, he got a mean case of syphilis. In the following days, many members of the extended Howard family are also tried and imprisoned, although most will end up being pardoned. Catherine isn't so lucky. On February 10th, she is brought to the Tower of London by barge, passing underneath the rotting heads of her former lovers, surely knowing what fate is going to befall her. Catherine spends her last night on Earth rehearsing for her own beheading, practicing how to look dignified on an execution block. 
At 9 a.m. the next morning, Catherine dies on the same spot her cousin, Anne Boleyn, was beheaded six years earlier. Another woman punished for the kinds of acts the King of England did all the time. What was Catherine's actual crime? She gave in to the pressure and outright bullying of Mannix, lost her virginity to somebody who, by Tudor standards, was her husband, and also maybe slept with Thomas Culpepper, who was not in fact her husband. But Catherine was beheaded because she humiliated Henry. Her scandalous past and her reckless sexual behavior ruined her reputation, and by extension his, the crown, and the country. She was the kind of scandal that the king couldn't afford. Henry's ability to govern his wife and his household was called into question by her dalliances, as was the paternity of any future royal heir. The truth is that Catherine was married, so her body was no longer hers. It was the property of her royal husband. Her sexuality became a dangerous liability, and for that, she had to die. Officially, Francis, Thomas, and Catherine were charged with treason by an act of parliament. Although usually, there is a public trial process in which the accused is able to defend herself, Catherine was never brought to trial, probably to avoid court appearances and public outrage. In order to get rid of Anne of Cleves, Parliament had made it treason to slander the royal marriage in writing or by spoken words, to attempt harm against the king, and to commit adultery while married to the king. Parliament also passed a new bill declaring it treason for an unchaste woman to marry the king, or to fail to reveal any knowledge of unchastity for any woman the king might intend to marry. So while Anne Boleyn was beheaded for her sexual behavior during marriage, Catherine was actually beheaded for her premarital behavior. The official attainder reads that Catherine, whom the king took to wife, is proved to have been not pure and honest living before her marriage, and the fact that she had since taken to her service one Francis Derham, with whom she used that vicious life before, and has taken as chamberers a woman who was privy to her naughty life before, is proof of her will to return to her old, abominable life. Did Catherine bring about her own demise? I, for one, think she was a victim, like so many other Tudor women in a society that found their sexuality dangerous and blamed them for stepping, willingly or not, outside the lines. Until next time. Thanks for listening. And a big thanks to our guest, Elizabeth Norton, whose work you should definitely get your hands on. This episode was co-researched and written by the fabulous Carly Quinn. There are lots of ways to support The Explorers. Tell a friend about it, leave a review wherever you listen, become a patron, or just send me an email telling me what you love best about the show. You can find show notes for this episode on my website, theexplorerspodcast.com, which includes a transcript, images, a list of my sources, and more. You can find me on Instagram at The Explorers Podcast and occasionally on Facebook and Twitter at The Explorers Pod. The music you just enjoyed comes courtesy of guitarist John Sales. Thanks as always to Mr. Explorers for my theme song and logo, and to the following for their vocal stylings. Amy, who played Catherine Howard. Tana, Ed Jenkins, Carl, King VO, and Jordan. <laughs>